This is a KTF Press podcast. I think it is more threatening to them that I claim to take scripture seriously, I claim to be Christian, than if I said, I don't even share the same premises you do. And I think it's more threatening for like, you know, a simple reason, which is that to take us seriously, a present queer Christian seriously means they can't just keep their faith model intact and just saying you're either opt in or you opt out to incorporate someone who has a different point of view within the body of Christ means that you have to also reevaluate your faith model. And that is like generally a lot more unsettling than just to say someone has rejected the whole thing altogether. Welcome to Shake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith for the Kingdom of God. I'm Jonathan Walton here with Susie LaHood and Cy Hoekstra. Today we're going to be talking about queerness in church and in colonization. But before we get to that, some quick reminders. If you like what we do on this show, please go to ktfpress.com and become a subscriber. That gets you the weekly newsletter from the three of us and all of the bonus episodes of this show. It also supports our book projects, transcribing this show to keep it accessible, and everything else we do at KTF. And remember, you can always start your subscription off with a free month by going to ktfpress.com slash free month. Please also follow us on your podcast player, leave us a rating and review, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at KTF Press. Thank you so much for your support. Our guest today is Kai Nu. Kai was born in Sarawak, Borneo in Malaysia. When they were 10, their Chinese family moved to the United States. Kai graduated from Columbia University, lives in Brooklyn, and attends Yale Divinity School, where they're studying colonial and missionary historical engagement with indigenous religious traditions in Southeast Asia. Thank you so much for being here today, Kai. Thank you for having me. Um, I realize my claim to Brooklyn is like slightly more attenuated. I actually now live in New Haven, but I do visit uh, most weekends, but at, at heart, <laughs> I've been in New York now for like 13, 13 years. So, and right now you're actually in Malaysia. <laughs> yeah, and right now my my connection has even become become even more attenuated. Uh, I'm twelve <laughs> hours ahead in uh, Kuala Lumpur. We will uh, get to why you're there in a little bit, but I think we should start off just by talking about your story of how you got from the point where you grew up in a, in a church that was really conservative on the issues of sex and gender to, to where you are today. So would you, would you mind giving us the, uh, the highlights of that story? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I've saw you and I know each other for since college and Jonathan same. And I think you all probably, so that was about, I went to college 2008 to 2012. So more than a decade ago at this point. Um, I think most people who've known me since then have known that I, this is a big question I've been thinking about for many years, um, really since high school. And I think to try to distill the sort of fundamental tension I was grappling with, you know, I grew up as someone who um, took my faith very seriously. It, it, it was if not the primary thing in my life. Um, but at the same time, I had the sense that something was not quite right. In, in sort of um, the ways in which at least uh, the way the scripture and God was portrayed to me with regards to queer people. And that wasn't just about my particular experiences uh, with like being with um, in, in quote unquote queer relationships, uh, but I think it was also just kind of observing um, queer communities and life within queer communities and seeing that 
in general, I think um, that when people sort of come out or embrace themselves in some way or accept themselves in some way, there tends to be more of the fruits of the spirit, arguably, you know, more joy, more peace, um, mm. more patience in some cases. And, you know, some of the people, some of the most saint-like people, I would argue, I've, I've known are people who are queer and who have had to come to like forgive their parents and sort of go through that whole journey. Um, it seemed to me that, um, you know, I think like for me, initially it was, I was grappling more with sexuality, the experience of falling in love with someone, being loved by someone else taught me a lot about the gospel, taught me a lot about grace and um, was like a motivating thing to try to be a better person, arguably sanctification. And so it just mm. kind of felt like, well, I think throughout the whole time I was like, okay, but scripture seems to indicate there's something like special about the male female union that somehow I'm missing in this current thing. Like what is this magic sauce that I don't quite get? <laughs> um, and if you're Catholic, I think it's like clear what the answer is, but if you're not, you don't quite take the whole like sex must be for reproduction angle. Um, it's sort of just like, you're just left like a lot of questions, like, the complementarianism, like men are somehow this, women are this, and somehow they magically form to create this like special thing that other people can't. And you know, the argument starts to break down. And I basically felt by the time I left college that my theology felt like a sieve, as in like um, a metal sieve you use to like filter out things. Mm. In a sense that it felt like it was very internally consistent, that there was kind of a metal logic to it, metallic logic to it. But it was very porous. It couldn't hold the weight of the experiences I was having, the experience I saw in my in the lives of my queer friends. Um, mm-hmm. And I think also more more to the point, it always felt to me that the heart of the gospel is that we are unconditional love without merit in some ways. That that, and that applies across the board. Um, something we can do to earn or disearn it, and we're, it's a both for a humbling thing and a very empowering thing at the same time. And I, I think I always try to figure out how this fit with the heart of gospel, how a anti-LGBT stance like fit within that. Um, you know, often at times I feel like queer people, like myself, are called to sort of explain our position, but sometimes I feel like it really should be the reverse. Um, so people should have to explain why exactly that position fits within what at least I take to be the heart of like this whole gospel Jesus thing. Um, for me, uh, the key part of kind of what broke things open theologically for me in terms of being like, Oh, I can see how I can take scripture seriously in my, tr- my faith tradition seriously. And also possibly embrace my queerness was just realizing that scripture itself presented potentially more liberatory paradigms to interpret what we consider as scripture um, than we apply to it. So the, you know, I know Sai and Javi, you have read some of the blog posts I've written on this, but um, looking at, the decision to incorporate um, the Gentiles into the Jewish covenant um, around the time of the early church. I think I would argue, and some of the texts I would point people to would be disarming violence, as well as some blog posts by this author named J.R.D. Kirk, or Daniel Kirk, who wrote Mm -hmm. a bunch about this. Um, And those are the arguments I found most convincing, which is that there's precedent in scripture to seriously reevaluate what you think to be the core tenets of your ethical code, uh, moral code, your identity code, if you feel like the Holy Spirit is moving in ways in the lives of people that you did not expect. So you notice with the early church, eunuch is baptized, really the first time Gentiles baptized, 
and and the centurion is baptized. And only after that do the the, the early church be like, okay, we need to consult the scriptures and figure like how this fits in. They they didn't Mm. like pause and say, we we can't baptize you. We need to do like a little scriptural study or counsel. And then we can go back and figure out who we can baptize. It's like, all right, clearly like God's asking you to be baptized. So we're going to do that. And we're going to figure out how to make it work kind of at like post facto. Um, (laughs) And I feel that kind of um, epistemological framework, I think, honestly, I think should be like what we apply, not just with queer stuff, but just sort of in general um, to kind of take the movement of the spirit uh, as seriously or as a way to lead how we then interpret scripture, because the truth is none, none of us interpret scripture from a neutral perspective. So if you're going to pick a perspective, I think it would be a good one to pick where uh, a, a perspective in which you are being open to what I think are the, where the fruits of the spirit are sort of being, uh, are, are being evidentiary. This is sort of that word are being revealed, so to speak. I, I appreciate a, a couple of things about that. One is, you're the tool that you've like come to see as important, which is actually using your experience, not as something to just be like bludgeoned out of existence by scripture and doctrine, but as, as a, as a tool, as part of the, um, acknowledging like your, your interpretation comes from those experiences and saying, okay, what, what can I learn from the world as I experience it, which is, in some ways actually a very traditional way of looking at scripture, but it's something that I think, especially in the churches that that you and I, and that a lot of probably our audience grew up in have, have sort of done away with. Um, The Wesleyan quadrilateral. The Wesleyan quadrilateral. I don't know this one. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. If you're Methodist, I think you use it a bit more. It's like tradition, reason, experience, the four corners. Yeah. Right. Oh, right. Exactly. I have heard that before. I didn't know that's what it was called. The only quadrilateral I, of course, have ever heard of is the evangelical one. I forget the guy's name. (laughs) Um, The other thing, though, that you said that you said very briefly was that you spent some time trying to, you know, work out how to to fit your experience into sort of traditional theology. And I just want to highlight that that was an understatement. You spent years (laughs) trying to like... (laughs) like study hard in a, in a lot of different places. You know, I, I don't, I, I do want to underline the fact that like, and this doesn't necessarily have to be everyone's path, but you in particular were, were extremely thoroughgoing about your um, attempt to understand things as they were taught to you. And I, I don't know, I, I think that's important to your, your part of your story, not necessarily everybody's, but yeah. Three things. I want to say thank you so much <laughs> for being here. Second thing is, I agree. I just want to reiterate with Sai, like, I think something that really bothers me about conversations like this is the assumption is that the person that you're, you disagree with has not done the work mm. or the per- like, there's like, we come into a lot of conversations thinking the other person must not be as smart or as learned or as studied as much as I have. Right. And it's, I just think that's a fundamentally unhelpful way of um engaging whatever the the conversation is and i i feel like there's a if there was a way to break that posture in the church it would be really helpful and you've done um the third thing is like you when you're i think i don't remember which article it was but your work around context and engaging with the experience stuff is is super i think super important and super helpful and so like you wrote an article a few months ago back on 
people who disagree on theology or politics accusing each other of being brainwashed. And you wrote about coming to grips with the idea that our intellectual views are partially shaped by the people and institutions around us and applying that realization to your disagreements, like with your parents over your queerness. Like, and so, you know, we, we talk about context and stuff in this big picture, but then you made it super personal and like how you, you did that with your parents. So could you walk us through your thoughts on that? Um, I know it's a big question with a lot of, a lot of pins, but um, I think it'd be really helpful if you could. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and thanks for giving me some credit uh, over those 10 years. Although I feel like <laughs> I really envy people for whom like it's just like a gut intuition. Like obviously God created me. I'm queer. Thus God's good with me. Like I truly. That would have been easier. Yes. That, um, <laughs> ability to sort of tap into your intuition and the Holy Spirit. I think in some ways my process, although it is what it is, I think reflects sometimes my um a, sort of habit I've developed about needing to kind of write a long FAQ, a long treatise before I feel I can trust uh, my judgment and gut. So mm. uh, anyhow, some, some bad <laughs> consequences of that. Um, the article I wrote, you know, came, so shortly after I kind of came to the conclusion that actually there are some possibilities for scripture to uh, embrace queer people fully into the church, meaning they can get married, be ordained, et cetera. Um, I decided, okay, next step is coming out to my parents, and that kind of commenced. That was about 2016, right around Trump's election. Uh, commenced like a very bitter theological war. It was like really getting to the like 15th century religious warfare in Europe. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, bloody, almost verbally bloody battles on like Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2, you know, yeah. the whole shebang. And kind of in the setting of the dust of over that, I started reflecting more about what was the most hurtful things that were said to me and why they felt hurtful and also doing some critical mm -hmm. introspection. And, you know, I think for me, the most hurtful things at that point in time that were said were accusations that really I um, was, were just kind of giving into my desires, so to speak, that this was not something that I thought a lot about and done a lot of research, as you all indicated, but that was just me giving to maybe peer pressure because I uh, moved to Brooklyn. Um, or going to a progressive church. I, mean, I, I went and still am part of Forefront Brooklyn Church. It's a great progressive non-denominational church. Um, and I think that there was a way in which like, I felt that they weren't taking the weight of my quote-unquote rational argument seriously. And they were accusing me of, of being brainwashed by liberal peers, by Columbia University, you know, what have you. Um, and I started thinking about why that was hurtful to me, but also firstly, why they said that. And I think, and I, cause I started noticing because I just around Trump election, a lot of um, people generally accusing the other political side of being brainwashed, like you know, too much Fox news or too much MSNBC or social media is creating like fake news vortexes. Um, so it just felt like my, my micro identity, my parents were being played out macroly on a national scale, like really intense Anyhow, also my parents voted for Trump, so it's like it brought it brings like a whole other level to it. Um, yeah. Okay, get into that some other time. But actually, I think I met up with you, Jonathan, right the day after the election. I think oh, we got lunch, um, so that brings things full circle in some way. Uh, I, I realized that part of the charge of brainwashing is a couple of things. You know, obviously, it makes it easier not to uh, not to interrogate your own reasons, or maybe you. You know, maybe you also 
aren't the most rational person. It's not just like the other side is, you know, hasn't thought through things or hasn't like, you know, done the work as you were saying, Jonathan. Um, but I think particularly when it happens to someone very close to you, like a family member or loved one, and they sort of radically change in ways that, because um, I had a much more conservative position, radically change. I think the accusation of brainwashing also helps cope with grief. It's, it's a way of saying, mm-hmm. clinging on to the person you thought you knew and saying, that person I thought I knew is still there. Some outside third party foreign influence has come in and like changed, you know, the daughter I loved or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a way of ex- externalizing blame. And I've been reflecting on that. I was like, okay, I could see how this is part of the kind of grieving process in a way. Um, but if I were to, if I, if I want them to take my arguments seriously, I, I have to also kind of reply what, how I want them to treat me to how I treat them. Uh, or how, or, or maybe I need to step back and think about why it is that that charge stings. And I think the truth is, if I'm really honest about it, is that although I, you know, have some good arguments for why I have my position and stuff like that. Um, there are also arguably non-rational factors that led to my like set of conclusions and um, set of commitments that have to do with experiences, as I've mentioned. Um, I think a very pivotal experience for me was going to, in 2016, around January, um, a queer Christian conference called QCF, um, or GCN at the time, where I was with like 800 to 900 LGBTQ Christians who kind of spoke the same sort of evangelical language I grew up with, like a lot of Jesus, a lot of Bible, people like speaking in tongues, raising their hands, you know, pretty multiracial, pretty diverse in worship style. And to see that, you know, for the most part, a lot of them were pretty open and affirming of their sexuality or gender was very powerful to me. Um, that, that did not introduce any new arguments, so to speak, but that yeah. shaped who I was. Um, and so I think, you know, that, that article was kind of my way of both acknowledging that at the end of the day, we are not fully rational beings. In fact, we're mostly, I think, not rational and that we're shaped by all these experiences. And I think the sooner we can kind of conceive that on both sides, that there are biases, that everyone's incentivized and motivated or biased in some way or another, maybe the better we can um, have like more compassionate conversations. So I wrote the article really for myself and my parents, but hopefully it's relevant for other people as well. And I think the way you ended it was that you, you like you have made some attempt with your parents to explicitly make that some of the basis of your conversation. Is that right? Like that whole framework that you just presented? I think for what it is for, we have gotten to a point where we've stopped arguing about theology and we've just tried to deal. I think they've come move from denial to acceptance or rather like that. I'm probably not going to change anytime soon. So if they want to have a relationship with me, the reality is they have to also accept people I date or other things about me. Um, So I think that that way of, recognizing the person before you and not the person you once knew that was honestly not super honest in some ways and not super authentic and, rec- and dealing with the route in front of you was is ultimately the pivot they I think have made for the most part. Mm. Kai, just to, to pivot a little bit, you were a co-founder of Church Clarity. Could you talk to us about what inspired that organization and what it's all about? Yes. Yeah, so, um, the team of us got together, um, my name is George and Tim, um, early in the summer of, I want to say, 2018. 
2019, mostly in response to sort of progressive, um, pack, progressively packaged, but ultimately um, mis- misleading hipster churches, um, hmm. kind of churches that would have pastors with sort of like skinny jeans and tattoos and like really flashy <laughs> lights and sort of very contemporary style of service that seemed to indicate, you know, like Justin Bieber goes there, like celebs um, indicate that sort of like with it. And I think with that, people sort of assume that this, these churches are also with it in other ways, other social mores and norms, um, particularly around women leadership or queer standing queer people in the church. And um, but you can't find like a single belief statement anywhere. The only time you find it is once you get into the ranks high enough and you try to be a member, you try to lead a volunteer. Like, oh, actually, we have to sign. You have to sign. Um, and it's sort of hush hush and stuff like that. So I think the the foundation of it, um, the, my, you know, the person came with that idea, his name is George McHale. Was like he was sort of inspired in some ways by an varsity um, cl- clarific- organizational clarity um, to say like, this is kind of where it's as an organization. Everyone should know and just kind of get with it or not. Um, and he was like, even though obviously that cause has caused some harm, maybe in the long run, that's like better than being misleading. Um, Cause I think ultimately when you're not clear, you are sort of being patronizing as in you do not think that people have the ability or agency to make decisions with full information that you have to sort of like beguile them into it or kind of ease them into it, trick them into it. Yeah. Which honestly is the premise of a lot of, I think, conversion evangelistic tactics. It's like pizza night, surprise, it's Jesus night. You know, it's like... Um, <laughs> yeah, the bait and switch. The bait and switch. So it's like that mentality. It's like this kind of like embarrassment about your beliefs packaged with like a desire to stand by them leads to this like weird marketing thing um, that we felt just kind of doing more harm than good because people will invest all this time in the church and then leave. So we started this database called churchclary.com that I've since stepped down from. I just serve in advisory capacity. But... Um, we have a group of volunteers that review crowdsource submissions of church websites. And we have a criteria methodology by which we score the website for how clearly it communicates, how easy it is to find uh, statements of beliefs or policies on women in leadership and equipped from the church. And we give it a clear unclear score as well as a egalitarian and non-egalitarian, affirming and unaffirming, or undisclosed, what we truly don't know. Um, so that's kind of the heart of the mission. And we've realized it's been helpful also for mainline denominations. We can get to that some other time, not just evangelical ones. We've kind of steered clear of, um, non-Protestant churches, Catholic Orthodox churches are, you know, have, it's a separate, this is not quite the problem they have. Um, so that's kind of at the heart of it. And honestly, that, I do still quite believe in that mission, even if I'm no longer, formally part of it, which is why it was important for me to get clarity on where you all stood on with the issue of LGBT people before I agreed to do the interview. Mm-hmm. Have you all ever like said that publicly, I guess, in a podcast format? Like this is where we're standing right now. I, well, I think what we're, what we had actually talked about doing was before this episode, uh, doing that basically, like we will have done that by the time this comes out. Okay, great. That, that I was going to, I wasn't going to like force you all to do it, but I was going to ask you all to do it. So I'm glad you all. Well, I, I, yeah, I appreciate the, 
A, I appreciate that you're consistent with what you do and you, you'll <laughs> mm-hmm. do it wherever you go. I think that's a, a, a something that forces integrity on, on people in a way that I think is helpful. And um, yeah. yeah, we will, we will have done that by, by now. And we appreciate the, the push. The, the, the question that I have is I'm wondering if there are maybe two or three ways that you see colonization impa- impacting how we see our sexuality and see the sexuality of others and specifically how um, our faith informs that or misinforms that um, without giving a preview to your like dissertation and thesis to in your book probably come out in a couple <laughs> or of years. Or you could if you want <laughs> oh, yeah, to do that. <laughs> We'd love to get that scoop. <laughs> I know, right? No, someone else will have to write it. Um <laughs> I can only tackle a very small piece of it. Oh, maybe one day when I'm 50. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in some ways it's very hard to disentangle, right? Christianity from colonization because they're sort of cooked from the same cauldron or come from the same people. So it's really not a question of like if, but how. Um, mm. And mm. I think the crux of it is that around the early modern century, which is how we're talking about 14th to 16th centuries in Europe, um, we see this kind of like confluence and convergence of a bunch of hierarchies, both based on race, gender, and sexuality. Um, and so where, you know, the European white man is seen as at the very top because he's rational, he's in control of his desires, and he's sort of acting upon desires in a rational way. Um, sex has to be for reproduction. That's like a rational way of using it. Not You're not giving it to your desires. And it's masculine. It's in, You're in control. It's virtuous. And so I don't think it's quite a coincidence that you have um, an uptick of persecution against women as witches, uptick uh, of hanging of people accused of sodomy uh, around the time also that you have um, Europeans going into many parts of the world and saying these people are uncivilized and barbaric for a number of reasons. You know, sometimes they like they point to the lack of quote unquote written um, written documents show these people are illiterate to kind of read. Maybe they have a rich oral history, you know, what have you. Or these people are worshiping the devil because they have all these like idols, a sign of their barbarism. But one of the things that we'll point out as a sign of the, the barbaric nature of these peoples that they are trying to justify the colonization of in a sort of condescending way, saying that we have mm-hmm. to steward these people into full maturity mm-hmm. uh, so they can go into the full maturity of Christ, so to speak is um, looking at their gender and sexual behaviors. So I'm going to read out some quotes. This is from a, a catechism recorded in 1585 um, from Spanish Catholic, Spanish Catholic catechism uh, somewhere. I forget where in what is now Latin America. But uh, so this is catechism. So this is what is being taught, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a list of sins that in why it's a sin. And then quote, above all these sins, it's a sin we call nefarious and sodomy, which is for man to sin with men or with women, not in the natural way. So keep in mind, sodomy is any kind of sex that's not natural. So it's not oral sex might count um, between a man and a woman. So it has to be for the purpose of reproduction. And even both all of these to sin with beasts. So bestiality is also included under sodomy. Let it, dot, dot, dot. Let it be known that the reason why God has allowed you, the Indians, should be so afflicted and vexed by other nations because of this vice sodomy that your ancestor had and many among you still have. So they're connecting the, the story of the destruction of the city of Sodom to the destruction of these 
uh, indigenous civilizations and saying your sodomitic practices are what is leading, part of what's leading to the destruction of your city, just like the Sodom was destroyed in the Bible. Um, I don't have time to go into like why that interpretation of uh, Lot and Sodom is, is, is great. And I think most even like, you know, quote unquote conservative people would sort of concede probably that's more of a story of hospitality um, than about uh, sodomy. But, but you see this rationale being put out. Um, so that's in Latin America. And you fast forward, not fast forward, but just move continents around the same time period to the Philippines and Southeast Asia, the context I know a little bit better. And you have, um, I think, Francis de Alcina writing uh, in the 1600s, so just a few a few decades later, uh, about these um, you know, devil-worshipping priestesses um, and how they're kind of crazy. And then he says, quote, the devil also chose some effeminate men that they called Asog in ancient times. And it says these were impotent men and deficient for the practice of matrimony. So the missionaries are seeing de- the devil in everything, are seeing the devil behind anything that seen as pagan, but also anything that is seen as effeminate. Um, and I think there's a there's this um, quote from a 1486 handbook on witchcraft that talks about why the feminine is seen as more successful to the devil. Quote, the etymology of the word femina comes from fe, which means faith, and minus, which is less than, since she is by ever weaker to hold and preserve the faith. Therefore, a wicked Women is by her nature quicker to adjure the faith, which is the root of witchcraft. So you see this connection between effeminacy, devil, successivity to the devil, and that anyone who's adjacent to feminacy, the, the Europeans come across so, so, so many in Africa and Latin Americas and Southeast Asia and Pacific Islands of people who they describe as men in women's clothes, um, holding ritualistic and religious power. And they see this as ultimately why would anyone, you know, choose to be like a woman? Um, mm. Clearly, they must be possessed by the devil because also effeminacy is linked to it. Anyhow, um, <laughs> so that's like a big part of the puzzle. I think that we have to kind of untangle when we think about the role of the church and the state. Um, and it's much more complicated than that. You know, I think there's something to be said about um, how the medieval church was a lot more, I would say, gender expansive and fluid. But I think the Catholic Church feels it needs to tighten up its roster and it's become much more orthodox when Protestants come around and start accusing the church, Catholic Church of decadence, of effeminacy, of like this ornate burlesque shows. Um, and the church has to be like, oh, God, we have to like step up our game and they start eliminating a lot of female saints, for instance, um, partly because not out of intentionally, but because they are trying to create more stricter, quote-unquote, scientific criteria by which someone can become a saint. And so through that logic, a lot of, like, you know, village folklore, so to speak, gets eliminated out. Anything that's seen as pagan or pre-Christian gets eliminated out. And women tend to hold, like, a lot of, you know, knowledge around herb lore, you know, and stuff like that that is seen as, like, not Christian. Um, So all these things are super, I think, integrated, interconnected. I can talk more about Malaysia and Southeast Asia specifically, but that's like a a big piece of the puzzle. Please do talk more about Malaysia specifically. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, my context is more, I'm looking more at 20th century stuff. Um, So the missionaries at this point in time are a little bit more hip and they're like, we need to come here and help the poor. We need to like start schools. We need to like do these things. It's very much tied in with um, your seeing their role as part of being um, as, as being part of the economic socioeconomic development 
of countries. Mm. Um, it's essentially, I argue, the I would say, a neocolonial argument. You're still helping these like backwards people develop. Now you're kind of helping them develop by like learning English or like introducing, um, you know, modern quote unquote medicine. I, I'm not going to argue against like the demerits of learning English and like you know taking antibiotics. Um, but I, but what we, what we see also is the missionaries come and say, um, you should, for instance, um, stop believing all these superstitious stuff about like, you can't cut down those trees because you believe the spirits live in them. Like there's only one God. There's not much of spirits around. You're afraid of offending. Um, and you know, and that's like the most generous reading missionaries also come. It's like, you should stop. Uh, you should plant cash crops and you should like, you know, do all this stuff that essentially changes people's economic arrangements from one from um, subsistence to cash based economy, which creates all kinds of issues. Missionaries also do other things to like working in the government to keep populations more sedentary so they can build parishes around them. Anyhow, but part mm. of this clearing away of superstition um, is what, what, what one of the unintended consequences is uh, more environmental destruction because in absence of seeing nature and trees as sacred, such a capitalist values kind of kick in and people are like, okay, I can cut all these trees and make more money and make get, you know, timber out of it. Um, there isn't a kind of replacement sort of theology, so to speak, that says like actually maybe nature is, you know, there's tons of eco theology that are Christian mm-hmm. enough to get into it. Um, and so, what you start seeing is that groves that used to be protected and sacred are start to be decimated and that it creates like erosion by the rivers and prevents and things that prevent mudslides during big storms start to like become bigger and bigger. And um, they've been really affecting the part of Malaysia that I um, spent some of my early childhood and I'm hoping to build deeper relationship with um, these Borneo or East Malaysia, Sabah and Sarawak. Um, and so um, I, for me, I came into this question thinking about gender and sexuality, but I've realized I really need to take the environment a lot more seriously too, because um, so much of indigenous religions is about seeing and respecting plants and animals as spiritual forces as well. Um, and so I think that, you know, arguably has some pros and cons. You don't want to live your life like scared of like the bird saying something like singing a certain song that makes you have to stop work because now it's a bad omen. But I think also um, the loss of belief in nature as a sacred force to begin with um, has led to like some really bad practical consequences mm. for like people's livelihoods. So I think Christians have to grapple with them. The idea of, uh, of changing people's agricultural life so that you can put up a, a church and make a parish to me is so kind of like um, distills a lot of ideas into one, right? Like you're, you're, you're creating this system where you're coming in and, and um, trying to get people more into, to working in market economy and trying to like move them away from their, any indigenous practice, whether it's like religion or just medical or totally. whatever. And, and consign and literally consolidating your own power right? Like over not like over the material and spiritual condition of people. And all of that coalesces in and is symbolized by the construction of a church to Jesus. It's just, it's like horrible. (laughs) Yeah. And I I didn't elaborate on this point, but it's definitely worth spending like a beat more on it. 
uh, essentially the, the, the colonial administrators are very frustrated by indigenous farming practices because it's sort of a slash and burn and you rotate uh, where you plant every seven years, more or less. So you leave land fallow for a while, wait for it to like die and come back to life. Um, for a variety of reasons, obviously like sustainability, but also there's some spiritual beliefs behind it. Um, so that's very fresh in colonial administrators because they cannot keep track of their population. It's like the borders keep shifting. And then these priests come and they build a parish and then like the whole village disappears in seven years. So they're like, this is not working. We can't like build an empire, essentially. We can't build institutions that are mobile all the time. Um, so they convince and persuade out of a variety of reasons um, uh, people to um, switch the way they do agriculture to do, of course, a more cash crop, which is more sedentary and like really kind of ruins the land because you don't give it a break and you kind of just work it to the ground uh, for decades. And so it seems like a fairly innocuous thing, so to speak. You're just like shifting how people farm, but it has these huge implications. Um, and there's this interesting letter um, between, and, and it might be seen as like, oh, that's just agriculture has that a religious disruption. But how people farm and work and live is their religion um, for a lot of indigenous religions. It's like you, there is no like church you go to. You call in the priestess, the priest, your equivalent of that, at the, when the harvest begins to give a blessing. And the agricultural rhythms of life is integrated with religious rhythms of life. So when you disrupt agriculture, you also disrupt religious rhythm and you disrupt also the ways in which people are used to interacting with one another. There's this letter uh, written by this bishop in Saba. It's like, why are all the good men not Christians? And it's like, we end up getting the converts who are like kind of selfish and individualistic and are okay with like leaving their village and just like farming on their own and like screw everyone else. Because also that mode of farming was very like interdependent and communal. Anyhow, so he huh. begins in this dialogue with this um, indigenous native man who says like, I respect your religion. I almost converted at one point, but I can't leave, let my village down. Like if I just mm-hmm. want to go farm on my own and do my own thing, um, I can't, I, I, this is the way of life for us. This is a way of working. This is how we help one another. And so I think that's something we have to pay attention to. Um, and I don't think it's quite a coincidence as well that um, the reason why I got into this in the first place, I forgot to mention, is, the, is that the, the priests and priestesses, so to speak, who hold these religious roles, tend to also be historically and regionally people who engage in some level of gender fluidity or gender play. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested in figuring out as the missionaries come, um, the ecological consequences have been somewhat traced out, but I'm trying to understand the consequences for gender and sexuality too. What happens when you have a system that is led by women or effeminate people and it's replaced by a religious system that's led by men? Um, what are the kind of consequences that has um, for how gender works in like a religious context. So that's a bit more my angle, but the environment stuff is very important to figure into all of this. I can talk a little bit more why I think there's a connection, but I'm not still not very sure. So one, I just want to say thank you for the way that you, I just love the way that you show how these conversations are all interconnected. And so we're also doing violence yeah. to the, the conversation when we try to silo off these issues like, we're going to talk about queerness now. We're going to talk about how we relate to the environment. We're going to talk about, you know, women's roles. And and when really all of this is interconnected and needs to be interconnected, and I think that a lot of justice work that's going on t- 
today acknowledges that. And the church has been so far behind that conversation um, in a way that just is so tragic. But to kind of steer things again in a slightly different direction and maybe go back to your personal experience, Kai, um, something I've been kind of thinking about and reflecting on when it comes to conversations around queerness in the church is that, um, to put it quite frankly, I find it to be so distressing that Christians who I think are engaging in homophobic narratives without maybe wanting to call it that or label it as such, I think would actually rather see that folks who identify as queer didn't also identify as Christian, didn't also claim to have a relationship with Christ, to have a valid living faith, and that that feels like more of a threat to them than almost anything else. And I think that that also trickles down to folks in the church who are affirming of queer Christians. And so I just wanted to kind of, yeah, I guess maybe hear your thoughts on that because, um, again, I find it to be so hypocritical, particularly in, you know, a lot of what we talk about on this show is the white evangelical church in America and folks who claim to be most passionate about seeing people come to a living faith with Christ and, and coming to it, to a place of, of community in the body of Christ. And yet again, would rather see, I, I just feel like it relates to this sort of assimilating force that you've been talking about, that there has to be this assimilation that must take place in order for that to happen. And folks who will not assimilate, in the way that that Christians see as being necessary are, are more of a threat than anything else. Um, and so, yeah, if you could just kind of speak to that, I don't know if that's something that you've encountered or, or think about, but yeah, if I could just kind of throw that at you and realizing that it's, you know, it takes more for you to have to talk about this than for me to have to talk about this. So appreciating your kind of being willing to enter into that conversation, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. You know, I think uh, to be honest, I think queer people also, sometimes guilty, I would argue, of the same type of charge, which is that religion and queerness cannot mix. Um, mm. And some of the most advocates for that position are queer people themselves because um, it's almost like to, to acknowledge that would be to deny the pain they've experienced at the hands of the church. Uh. Um, but, you know, that's a, a, another conversation with when it comes to the, the specific subtype, I guess you're talking about people who are supposedly passionate about bringing people in church, yet at the same time seem to bulk at the prospect of a queer Christian more than a queer atheist. Um, I'll find that more yeah. unsettling. I mean, I think I often sort of think about that also in relation to my parents in a sense that I think it is more threatening to them that I claim to take scripture seriously, I claim to be Christian than if I said, I don't even share the same premises you do. Um, so it's, you know, it's like you can't even have a conversation then. Um, you know, my younger sibling is probably more secular than I am, and they do not engage in the same theological debates with my parents because the premises are just not workable. Um, and I think it's more threatening for, like, you know, a simple reason, which is that what to take us seriously, a present queer Christian seriously, means to that they have, they can't just keep their faith model intact. And just saying you're either opt in or you opt out. When you opt out, you're an atheist, so to speak. To incorporate someone who has a different point of view within the body of Christ means that you have to also reevaluate your faith model and say, okay, maybe there's some things I need to rethink about maybe how I read scripture or how I how I think about church authority, let's say, 
Um, and so I have to challenge my own set of beliefs or challenge my own presuppositions. And that is like generally a lot more unsettling than just to say someone has rejected the whole thing altogether. Um, right, right. Yeah. Sorry, just like one last comment. I did really like also see how you did how you use the word assimilation because I think the parallels of race are important because I do think there are, I would argue, like queer assimilationists who essentially want the same stat model of faith. They just want to be accepted within it. Um, and I take a mm. sort of more radical approach in saying like, maybe I think what queer people have to offer is liberatory for everyone, but it does mean like rethinking everything in some way, which is scarier. Mm. But unfortunately I just, um, I don't know. I like to be consistent. We've uh, kept you a little bit longer than I, I told you we would. So just before we go, uh, where can people find you on the internet? I guess people can find me. I have a website. I, so I recently started going by Kai, so everything is in my English name. Um, my website, I don't know what it has on there, just like sh- stuff I've written or talked about in the past. So just like a one, it's like a resume, essentially. Um, but It's also all my social media handle, Sarah New, which is spelled S-A-R-A-H-N-G-U. Awesome, Kai. Thank you so much for being here today with us. Thank you for having me. Before we go, real quick, a uh, reminder to check out ktfpress.com. Consider subscribing. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at KTF Press. Follow this podcast in your player. Give us a rating and review. All that is so helpful if you appreciate what we do here. Um, please, please do consider doing any or all of that. Our theme song, as always, is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks. When you arrive, Um, our theme song, as always, is, is mm, okay. Can I say that again?